All right. All right, so I am Josh Virginier. I am a politics, philosophy, and economics major at the King's College in New York City. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I really appreciate the way that Brad put the conference together um, with uh, Nathan kind of introducing some of my points um, with the first talk and then Dr. Baylor making explicit citation to Aquinas, whom I reference in this paper. Uh, just want to make sure that I don't go over time. The title of my paper is called, um, is titled, An Ordinance of Reason for the Common Good, Unius's Reform, um, Thomas Theory of Law. I'm just going to give a brief biographical sketch of Unius for those who um, don't, aren't familiar with the name. Franciscus Unius was born on May 1st, 1545, to Dennis Unius, a lawyer and statesman in France. Dennis, Dennis's father, William Unius, was Lord Bonifarnier at Virac. He served in the guard of King Louis VII, who, according to Unius, was the most Christian king in France. Unius's father studied law at the most prestigious academies in France, namely Borges, Portiers, and Toulouse. Denis married Jacoba Hulgada, who whom Unius describes in his Vita as, quote, a very upright young woman, woman from a devout family and with a character completely dedicated to tranquility. In Unius's fifth year, he began his primary studies under the tutelage of his father. A year later, Unius began to demonstrate his natural abilities in the academy. He says, quote, at the age of six, I began to write and demonstrate to some important degree the natural bent, the natural bent of my gifts and disposition. Unius's private education was supplemented with, his, with public tutors. Unius, following the path of his father, developed a taste for law at the age of 13. Unius mentions in his V to the French humanist jurist and future professor of Unius, um, Hugo Danellis, who would begin the translation of the Institutes of Justinian in his youth. As Unius's desire for law grew, he would practice at home with his father. During his teen years, Unius came to the recognition that he, quote, lacked in the knowledge of the more refined arts, languages, and especially history. Eunice understood these subjects to be necessary for the study of law. Eunice's father sent him off to study law with several entrusted men. However, with the inception of Eunice's legal studies came the beginning of several temptations. Eunice describes his encounter in his vita with Canis Ilia, she-dogs who were animated by promiscuity. Eunice writes, they, the she-dogs, did not set upon me one at a time and individually, but rather in groups of three or four at the same time. <laughs> with hands joined, they assailed me with the utmost shamelessness. Thus, if in my mind were drawn away to their degradation, they might bo boast in the trophies won from my innocence. At last, I became so irked at their effrontery that, with when, that when one of them, with the crowd of onlookers present, tried to put her hand on me flirtatiously, I landed a heavy blow on her. <laughs> Way to mortify the flesh. <laughs> Another encroaching temptation for the young Unius was that of atheism. Unius describes a brief encounter in his vita saying, A man came to me and was asserting with the greatest precision and by many proofs the words of Epicurus, which appear in the first book, namely that God had no care for him nor for anyone else. Unius was led to atheism by the persuasiveness and sophistication of this man's words. Unius writes that, quote, he was carried away, I was carried away headlong toward the point where my soul was growing hard, stuck in that evil, 
and becoming wholly incapable of feeling. Eunice describes his return to the faith in a very Augustinian fashion, echoing the confessions. He begins by extolling God for his mercies. Quote, Thou hast remembered, O my God, thou, thy servant, and thou hast rescued me freely by thy own mercy, while I was perishing wretchedly by my own action. Under the nefarious guidance of the untrusted men his father sent, sent his son with, Eunice would conclude his legal studies and return home to Lyons. He was received graciously by his father and was quickened to life by the reading of the Gospel of John, which was left open in his room by his father. Eunice writes, I did, I did that book displayed to me at first glance the very majestic chapter of, the, chapter of the evangelist and apostle John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. I read part of the chapter, and I was so moved as I read that immediately I perceived that the divinity the divinity of the argument and the grandeur and authority of the writing surpassed by a great margin all streams of human eloquence. My body shuddered, my mind was dumbfounded, and throughout the whole day I was so overwhelmed that I seemed to myself unsure who I even was. After Eunice's conversion, he began his theological studies at Geneva on March 17, 1562. Eunice describes his time in Geneva as being impoverished, impoverished something uh, all college students can relate to. Um, especially me, um, and says that he had little to no funds, another thing that we can relate to. <laughs> Eunice would begin teaching Latin, Greek, and Hebrew as a source of income. Eunice concluded his study of divinity in 1565 and was summoned to Antwerp to pastor in the Walloon churches. However, Eunice's time in Antwerp was brief as the Frenchman was heavily persecuted in Antwerp by both Papists and Anabaptists. The political climate in Antwerp was that of tumult, with the Spanish persecution being mandated by Philip II. Eunice would make his political voice heard with an appeal to Philip II that was printed in French in 1565 and German in 1566. The consensus that the the then stadtholder of the Netherlands, William of Orange, and Philip II came to was that only the, the ministers in the Low Countries would receive protection from persecution. Eunice was therefore forced into exile on October 14, 1566, and would soon reach the, the region of Limburg. Still being exposed to the threats of Papists and Anabaptists, Eunice fled to Heidelberg in 1568. Eunice briefly pastored a church there in Skownau. The years 1573, as Andrew McGuinness has pointed out, 1573 to 1578 marked the personal contribution of Eunice to reform biblical studies. During this time, Eunice began a distinctly Reformed Protestant translation of the scriptures from the original Greek and Hebrew into Latin. Eunice began this translation with the prominent Hebraeus Giovanni Emmanuel Tremelia, whose dates are 1510 to 1580. The first edition of the Eunice Tremelius Bible appeared first in 1579 and received further three, three further editions, um, recensions from uh, Eunice, in, one in 1581. 1593, and then the last in the year of Eunice's death, uh, 1602, sorry. In 1576, Frederick III, a faithful adherent to Reformed Protestantism, died and was succeeded by his son, Louis IV. IV. Under the maxim, Qus Regio, Eus Religio, Germany became Lutheran again. The Reformed faculty at Heidelberg who refused to sign the Formula of Concord were expunged from their posts. In response to this, Johann Casimir von Paltzsimmern, Frederick III's brother, founded the Casmerum Collegium at Neustadt. Unius Unius and the author of the Heidelberg Catechism, Zacharias Ursinus, who was a friend of Unius since his time at Heidelberg, were among the newly founded faculty. Unius later delivered the funeral oration at Ursinus' funeral in Neustadt. 
It was during this time in Neustadt that Unius delivered lectures on the Psalms, offering a distinct hermeneutical understanding of pactum, fotis, and testamentum, as explicated in his commentary on Genesis and his theological theses. After Ursinus's death, Unius returned to the University of Heidelberg, a post that he would hold until the late 1580s. During his time at Heidelberg, Unius wrote biblical commentaries, political tracts, and theological theses for his students' disputations. In 1593, the curators of the the University of Leiden invited Unius to be the professor primarius of theology at the university. In the summer of 1593, Unius arrived at Leiden and was greeted warmly, as he says, by the magistrate, the university, and his friends. Second point, the mosaic polity structure and sources. While at the University of Leiden, Unius authored the work translated here on the observation of the mosaic polity. This work is is dated October 11, 1593. However, it was preceded by a disputation that Unius presided over at the University of Leiden, similarly titled, The Theological Thesis on the Mosaic Judicial Law and Its Observation. The work that has received the most attention from post-Reformation historians, such as Richard Muller, David Sitzma, and William J. Van Asselt, is Unius's 1594 publication of the Treatise on True Theology. In it, Unius defines and distinguishes what theology is according to its subject, genus, species, parts, division, and object. The categories that Unius employs have a medieval precedent. However, a distinctly reformed treatise on the nature of theology does not arrive until the, early, until the middle of the early period of orthodoxy with Unius's treatise on true theology. The ectypal-archetypal distinction that Unius employs in the treatise on true theology is used a year earlier in the work of our attention, the Mosaic Polity. In the preface of the Mosaic Polity, Unius writes that several times these men demanded this duty of us for their own sake, that is, for those who govern and for the sake of all. Unius was personally summoned by the magistrates at Leiden to write on the relationship of the Christian commonwealth to the Mosaic Polity. The socio-political context of Leiden was that of confusion and zeal. The Dutch Republic and the Dutch Church at the time were still in their infancy. It was common for both theological, civil, and legal issues to cause discomfort in the body politic simultaneously. The task of setting the relationship of the Mosaic polity to the Christian commonwealth was that that both required theological and legal acumen. This is where Unius' interdisciplinary training came into play. As Andrew McGinnis has pointed out, Unius' erudite training and his publication of the Mosaic polity disproved the modern assumption of scholasticism and humanism being essentially antithetical. The structure of the Mosaic polity is divided into 38 theses. Thesis 1 covers the overall concept of law. Theses 2 through 7 distinguish the different kinds of law. And theses 8 through 38 establish the center of of Unius' discussion on the Mosaic polity. Unius, in line with the Christian legal tradition, distinguishes between the three different types of Mosaic law, ceremonial, moral, and judicial. Unius' reception of the threefold classification of laws shows that Unius is in step with the classical legal tradition, beginning with Justinian and extending to Thomas Aquinas. Regarding theological sources, there is explicit citation, similar to Aquinas on Augustine's free will and Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologiae. The subject matter of Unius' task allows him to rely heavily on the corpus iuris civilis of Justinian. The Western philosophical understanding of the consensus entium allows Unius to cite the traditional categories of Justinian, visibly the Entium and the Ius Civile. The categories, these categories are constantly referenced by Unius in the Mosaic Polity. 
As our keynote speaker has argued in both in Beyond Dort and De Auxilis, the dynamics of Protestant and Catholic soteriology in the 16th and 17th century, Unius begins the mosaic polity in the footsteps of the Thomist. That's a quote from Dr. Baylor. With a direct adaptation of Thomas's definition of lex, Unius writes, law is the ordering of reason for the, co- for the common good established by the one who has care of the community. This definition is almost identical to, to that of Thomas's in the Summa. Thomas writes, law is an ordinance of reason for the common good made by him who has care of the community and promulgated. This definition, of course, precedes Thomas and comes from Is- Isidore's etymologies, wherein Isidore writes, a law is the ordinance of a people of the people whereby something is sanctioned by the elders together with the community. Eunice begins his explication of the definition of law with a quotation from Chrysippus. For our purposes, citing it will be helpful. The law is the queen of all divine and human affairs, which is necessary to be the guardian for both the good and the wicked, the prince and the leader as well, and accordingly is the rule of the just and unjust, given for the sake of living beings which are by nature political and inhabit society with reason, instructing those things which are necessary to be done and truly prohibiting those things which, which must not be done. Following the scholastic rhetorical method that Unius will employ a year later, he first establishes the existence of laws. The existence of laws is something akin to the consensus yentium. The existence of law is an axiomatic principle in human life, and all have acknowledged its dignity, utility, and necessity. Moreover, the saving grace of God and the revelation of God's law have established its dignity, utility, and necessity. Unius, however, operating under Thomistic principles, does not understand the divine law to abolish the necessity of submission and obedience to human laws. He corrects this error with a Thomistic maxim. Quote, For to the extent that we may be Christians, we do not cease to be human beings, but we are Christian human beings. So also we must state that therefore we are bound by Christian laws, not that we are consequently released from human ones. For grace perfects nature, grace does not, however, abolish it. And therefore the laws by which nature itself is sustained and renewed, grace that restores those that which have been lost, renews those that have been corrupted, and teaches those that are unknown. For Unius, grace does not abolish nature, but perfects, preserves, and renews nature. Therefore, grace does not abolish the perpetuity of human laws. Unius, in the footsteps of Thomas, distinguishes the genus and species of law. The genus of law is ordering, which according to Unius is, quote, showing the perpetual and necessary relation between the one ordering and those who are under the ordering. The species of law, or the matter of law for Unius and Thomas, is identified with reason. Thomas agrees materially with Unius's genus-species formulation. Thomas writes, Law is a rule and measure of acts, whereby man is in- induced to act or is restrained from acting. For lex is derived from legare, because it binds one to act. Now the rule and measure of human acts is reason, which is the first principle of human acts, as is evident from what has been stated. Since it belongs to reason to direct to that end, which is the first principle in all matters of action, according to the philosopher, now that which is the principle in any genus is the rule and measure of that genus, for instance, unity in the genus of numbers and the first movement in the genus of movements. Consequently, it follows that law is something pertaining to reason. Unius then moves to answer the question of what the nature of law is. Unius does this in line with the scholastic tradition and determines the res ipsa of the law with the tradition, traditional Aristotelian etiology. 
The material cause of law is reason. However, since law is not an essence, it does not have a material cause, strictly speaking. But for, for Eunius and Thomas, the, prom, the just promulgation of law seems to occupy the material cause. The formal cause of law can be called ordering. The intervention or ordering between the two related terms should properly constitute the form of the thing that is enacted. Eunius concurs with Thomas's understanding of the efficient cause of law. In the Summa, Thomas asks the question whether the reason of man is competent to make any laws. Thomas responds to his objections with a quote from Isidore saying that the efficient cause of law is, quote, an ordinance of the people whereby something is sanctioned by the elders together by the community. Eunice gives a materially identical answer. He writes, we have, we have expressed the efficient cause in these words, established by him who has care of the community. Eunice's understanding of the final end of law is in the footsteps of Thomas. The final end of law for Thomas and Eunice is the common good of the body politic. Even if the law is an ordinance of reason that orders towards individual matters, it must be ordered toward the common good. The following quotation from Thomas helps identify Eunice's source, sources. Now the first principle, this is from Thomas, now, now the first principle in practical matters, which are the object of practical reason, is the last end. And the last end of human life is bliss or happiness, as stated above. Consequently, the law must need regard principally the relationship of happiness. Moreover, since every part is ordained to the whole as in, as in perfect to perfect, and since one man is part of the perfect community, the law must need regard properly the relationship to common happiness. Wherefore, the philosopher in the, in the, in the definition of, above of legal matters mentioned both happiness of the body politic, for he says, for he says that that which we call those legal matters just, which are adapted to produce and preserve happiness and its parts for the body politic, since the state is a perfect community, as he quotes Aristotle. Eunice and Thomas's assumption in their definition of law is first that man must be defined qua man, in order that his proper ends may be contemplated and enacted. Eunice says this in the Mosaic Polity, writing, first it is necessary to strive for a particular common good according to its own proper end. Eunice and Thomas debunk the modern separation of law from the final end of human life. On the contrary, laws are not laws if they are not ordered towards man's final end. All laws must properly reflect man's anthropology qua man. This principle of law always being directed towards the common good and not particular goods is derived from Thomas's and Eunice's understanding of the res publica of the body politic. The whole of the body politic constitutes the parts. Therefore, the whole of the body politic takes priority over individual parts. This is, a, this is an Aristotelian conviction for Thomas and Eunius. Human flourishing is impossible apart from the body politic. Individuals are the composition of the body politic, which by nature is a natural institution. Therefore, the common good takes precedence over particular matters. This does not negate particular goods, however, but it rather establishes them. Eunius writes, For even if law also orders concerning individual matters, yet the very individual formulations of law pertain to the common good. In fact, nature itself constantly teaches that all parts of one body are ordered to the whole, and the ration of for one part of a thing separately established by itself is imperfect until it is called to the rationale of the whole of which it is a part. The retrieval of the idea of the common good in constitutional interpretation is a controversial one, 
especially in conservative circles with well-loved conservatives on both sides, such as Hadley Arks, Josh Hammer, Adrian Vermeule, and Patrick Deneen. While, while it is not within the scope of my paper to argue for, proper, for the proper interpretation of the Constitution, nevertheless, Unius and Thomas's conception of the common good gives us Protestants an exhortation to revive our political imagination and redeem the administrative state so that the common good will be promoted in the body politic. Uh, the second point, um, third point, sorry, Unius's Thomistic Taxonomy of Law. Having established the definition and causes of law, Unius proceeds to give a taxonomy, taxonomy of law following Thomas's exact order. Thesis two of Unius's mosaic polity reads that law, is e- that law is either eternal, namely the immutable concept and form of reason existing before all time in God the founder of the universe, or informed and declared in time. Unius and Thomas understand the eternal law and the law informed in time as not being two species of the same genus, but being two different species altogether. The former not, bear, not, the, the former not being contained in any creaturely genus, and the latter bearing all the qualities of creaturely finitude. The eternal law and the law informed in time can only be referred to one another by way of analogy. That which is prior in nature is greater than that which is posterior. The eternal law for Unius and Thomas is prior to the law which is in nature, whether it is, whether it is via an internal principle or an external principle. This is because the eternal law is coessential with the divine essence. However, Unius and Thomas distinguish the eternal law from the divine reason in general. Thomas writes, A law is nothing else but a dictate of practical reason, emanating from the ruler who governs a perfect community. Now it is evident, granted, that the world is ruled by the divine providence, that the whole community of the universe is governed by divine reasons, divine reason. Wherefore, the very idea of the government of things in God, the ruler of the universe, has the nature of law. And since the divine reason's conception of things is not subject to time, but is eternal according to Proverbs 8.23, Therefore, it is that kind of law that must be called eternal. For Thomas and Unius, the divine reason in general is only distinct in our manner of conception from the eternal law, because the rest of the divine wisdom is occupied and contingent with created things in time. However, the eternal law is treated as, quote, the divine wisdom which he has established for human beings endowed with reason. The nature of this law is, as Chrysippus put it, The eternal law is the queen, guardian, and prince, as well as the rule of the just and unjust, to which it is necessary that all political and social beings must be conformed. The eternal law bears all the attributes of the absolute divine essence. It is therefore mutable and never ruled by another law. The eternal law exists in and of itself and is distinct from the law informed in time in that it bears no quality of creaturely participation or communication. In the footsteps of Thomas, Unius moves from the eternal law to that law that that is in time. Unius writes, That law that is in time is either natural or that which invenes to nature. The natural law is which is innate to creatures endowed with reason and informs them with common notions of nature, that is, with principles and conclusions, undumbrating the eternal law by a certain participation. The distinction between the eternal law and the law of nature is first made in time and they are distinguished according to the principles from which they have proceeded. For Unius, all created things have either an internal principle or something that advenes to them outwardly from, from, from some external principle acting on them and operating in them. Unius is not only Thomistic in his jurisprudential commitments, but also in his understanding of the synteresis. 
The Zenteresis for Unius and Thomas is located in the rational faculty, and its contents contain both primary notions, e.g., forsake, forsake that which is evil and pursue the good, and secondary conclusions, conclusions from those principles. The Zenteresis is the location of the infusion of the natural law in rational animals. The Zenteresis is not to be equated with, the, with natural law. However, it is the faculty that informs rational creatures of, with inborn principles of the natural law. The natural law, according to Unius and Thomas, is, as Eduardo Echeverria said, is rational creatures' participation in the eternal law. The eternal law is therefore in the rational creature called the natural law. The mode of rational creatures' participation in the natural law is informed by Unius and Thomas's previous treatment on the eternal law. The mode of participation, of course, is of course by that is, the mode of participation is that by, by way of similitude and analogy. Thomas and Unius invoked the Aristotelian understanding of practical reason in their treatment of the natural law. Practical reason for Thomas and Unius is the highest precept of natural law. Practical reason informs rational creatures with a triple order of inclinations placed in us by nature. These inclinations are either universal, common, or particular. The universal inclinations refer to the act of any substance in which it relates to the good according to its nature by employing those things that are suitable for its own conservation and repelling those things, to those things that are contrary to its conservation. Those common inclinations refer to that what, that what nature has taught individuals concerning the propagation and conservation of their species. Unis continues, of these, sort of, of these sort are the union of husband and wife, the education of children, and other similar things. Finally, the particular inclinations deal with the inclinations of rational creatures, who according to their nature surpass all creatures, Rational creatures are the first to incline to the cognition of God, as Unius says, and establishing of life with, with nature as one's guide in order to achieve the good. Therefore, in order, that the rational, in order that rational creatures may not be carried away from this triple order of inclinations, God added in nature common notions to inform rational creatures innately with the content of natural law. As previously stated, the common understanding of the medieval and reformed orthodox of the medieval and reformed orthodox traditions is that the synteresis contains common principles and common conclusions. We call those principles those axiomatic moral principles that are immovable and indemonstrable. For example, an axiomatic principle would be that God exists or that he preserves our existence. Common conclusions refer to the things that the light of nature leads us to from those axiomatic, immovable, and indemonstrable principles. For example, that God is to be worshipped vices to be condemned, and virtues to be pursued. These primary notions in, in, for both pre- and post-lapsarian man, man remain untouched and unspoiled. However, the secondary conclusions in post-lapsarian man, to quote Polyander, as uh, Jordan, uh, Dr. Baylor did, were completely covered and nearly wiped out. Unius's discussion on the Sinteresis, particularly in its fourfold estate, leads to his treatment of the divine law. Although Thomas does not devote a formal question to divine law, he understands the divine law to be contained in the old and new law, which he treats in questions 98 through 108 of the Prima Secunda Pars. The divine law for Unius was prelapsarian man's aim and end goal. Unius, in line with Thomas, affirms that the divine law is distinguished from the eternal law, since it does not bear the eternal nature of the latter. However, the eternal law is proximally conjoined to the divine law. The eternal law is divine in all modes, but the latter is divine in principle and according to a certain mode only. The eternal law is coessential with the divine essence and is incommunicable. 
but the divine law is communicable, as Junius says, by a gracious participation. The mode of communication of the divine law is in accord with the nature of God. Junius writes, Just as God is spirit, he acts and speaks in spirit. The divine law is infused in us, not just with the natural common principles and conclusions. The divine law informs us with common, common individual no- notions beyond nature. These common notions are supernatural principles and supernatural conclusions from those principles. Unius therefore further distinguishes the natural law from the divine law. The natural law is infused in man through common notions including natural principles and conclusions. However, since reason is disoriented and subject to error, it was necessary that that other principles above nature be inspired and infused by God so that we may know that end beyond nature to which we have been ordered and the truth would certainly lead to that end. The way that God excites these principles and conclusions is in a twofold mode, established by His grace. First, to quote Unius, God commonly exhibits the proofs of heavenly grace, and second, God individually by His Spirit informs a true consciousness of the divine law in His own people. For an example of this twofold mode, Unius uses the twofold sense that human nature is endowed with, with the prohibition against murder. The natural law declares universally to mankind, do not murder. However, it is only by the testimony of conscience that individually tells man, you have murdered. It was necessary for God to inform us first through the common notions present in the mind and second through individual notions present in the conscience. This is done according to Unius so that, quote, the use of the divine law would be effective, effective with us from its especially common testimony of salvation, even by an individual witness and revelation of whether it's applied ordinarily or extraordinarily. The fourth point, which deals with human laws, but it's titled The Eucientium and the Eucivile in Thomas and Unius. Unius's next set of theses, theses 7 through 31, deal with the human laws of Moses, particularly on the mutability and immutability of the Mosaic Code. Unius not only relies on Thomas for this section of the Mosaic polity, but in the spirit of Thomas also invokes the classical classical Roman jurist, particularly the Byzantine emperor Justinian. Both Unius and Thomas, in their treatment of the nature of Mosaic Code, frequently invoke Justinian's distinction between the Jus Gentium and the Jus Civile. Both begin their section on human laws by defining their perpetuity, by defending their perpetuity and authority. Yet they carefully distinguish the principle, action, and mode of human laws while maintaining their authority. Thomas begins his defense of human laws by highlighting a key distinction, that is, things being self-evident in themselves and then in relation to us. Although the principles of the innate common notions are axiomatic in all men, their necessary conclusions aren't. Hence the necessity of human laws. Thomas acknowledges that, quote, man has a natural aptitude for virtue, but the perfection of virtue must be acquired by man by some kind of training. Thomas gets at the pedagogical function of the law and therefore the pedagogical function of the magistrate who assumes the responsibility of promulgating the law. Thus, human laws are, according to Thomas, prescriptive and instructive. As he says, quote, The purpose of human law is to lead men to virtue, not suddenly, but gradually. Thomas and Unius carefully distinguished the principle of human laws. The principle of human laws is distinguished in two ways, from the more superior laws, e.g. the eternal, natural, and divine law. Human laws are not essential to God as the eternal law is, which is the rule of all rules, nor is, nor is its principle simply nature, but its origin is in human beings. 
Human laws are produced from the common principles of laws which we call reason. Nevertheless, their authority is born from the preceding laws, visibly the eternal, natural, and divine law. Human laws are not equal with the immediate principle of the, of the eternal, natural, and divine law. However, human laws are intended to submit to them as its master. Hence, Eunice is um, concise definition of human laws. The human law is that which humans, proceeding by reason, produce from the preceding laws, accommodated first to the common, common just, honest, useful, and necessary conclusions, then to particular determinations for the condition of persons for whose good is produced, the, thing, the things or matters concerning which it's produced, and for the circumstance which occur to them. Therefore, the proximate rule of human law is twofold. One is innate, one is the innate natural law, the other is the inspired divine law. The divine and natural law proceed from the immutable archetype, visibly the eternal law. In a similar fashion, human laws proceed from, a two, from the twofold source of the natural and divine law. Thomas and Unius push against the grain of analytical legal positivism, a disease that has plagued American jurisprudence for the last 50 years. They do this by distinguishing the two actions of human laws. First, a conclusion from premises, second by way of determination of certain generalities. The necessary due process of human laws consists of conclusions and determinations. The twofold actions of human laws constitute Justinian's division of human laws. For Thomas and Unius, the conclusions derived from the innate natural, natural law would belong to the usientium. The determinations contingent on the circumstances of the polity belong to the jus civile. The task of the jurist is therefore twofold. It is drawing out the general principles of the usientium, and from those conclusions determining what suits the jus civile of that commonwealth. Thomas and Unius's jurisprudential philosophies are therefore informed by the principles of Roman civil law. To illustrate the distinction between the two actions, Unius provides the following example based on the common principle of the natural law that no one wants to be afflicted by evil. The conclusion, or the usientium, may be drawn that one must not murder, commit adultery, steal, and so forth. In light of this conclusion, a determination, usivile, could be that whoever would murder, commit adultery, and so forth must be punished. It is up to the one who oversees each individual polity to determine the good and necessary consequences of the usientium. Hence, the diversity of laws from commonwealth to commonwealth, but the unity of moral conclusions from the usientium. If a law does not have the natural or divine law as its referent, it is no longer a law, but a perversion of law, as Thomas Aquinas writes. For Thomas and Unius, human laws always proceed from the more superior divine and natural law. And every human law should contain an element of the usientium and the use civile. The usientium and the use civile are born from the natural and divine law. And there is no law if it does not have the divine and natural law as its referent. As Justinian perfectly articulates in his definition of jurisprudence. Jurisprudence is the knowledge of matters divine and human and the comprehension of what is just and unjust. This is a crucial point in Thomas's and Unius's jurisprudential commitments. Human laws never reach the point of maturity if they do not refer to their source. Thomas lays out the threefold conditions that a law must meet to be a law. He gets this from Isidore. Laws must first foster religion in accordance with the divine law. Second, they must discipline in accordance with the, the natural law. Third, they must further the common good of the commonwealth. 
This is a point that has largely been forgotten in the legal academy, which has been plagued by conservative contextualism and analytical legal positivism. Unius and Thomas offer the contemporary legal academy a moderated legal positivism, a legal positivism that understands jurisprudence to be a subalternate science deriving its principles from holy theology, and acknowledges that all human, all human positive laws are produced from the divine and natural law, which is the mother of all laws. Conclusion. As we have seen, Franciscus Unius's jurisprudentials are, jurisprudential commitments are Thomistic in nature, and continuing in the legal tradition of his day, he is not afraid to invoke Justinian. However, how do Thomas's and Unius's jurisprudential commitments apply to the legal academy and the post-liberal discussion? First, as stated previously, Thomas, Thomas's and Unius's understanding of jurisprudence as a subalternate science must be recovered if we intend on, legal, on, on healing the legal academy. Second, Thomas and Unius offer us a classical understanding of the final end of law. Laws must always be directed to the common good of the commonwealth, who determines to enact the common good in contemporary American government is something that, we can, is something that can be debated. However, we must return to the rightful understanding of the role of the administrative state to construct a positive vision of the common good. Finally, the moderated legal positivism of Thomas and Unius provides a remedy to the errors of the contemporary legal academy. Positive laws must always have the divine and natural law as the referent. Laws that fail to bear the qualities of the divine and natural law are, as Thomas says, no longer a law but a perversion of law. We must abandon the conservative contextualism and legal positivism that have eroded the natural relationship between law and wisdom. Law by its nature is meant to legislate morality and lead men to virtue, not suddenly, but gradually, as Thomas says. We must redefine the anthropological assumptions that influence our legal philosophy and return to the classical understanding of man as a political and social animal. Unius offers, pro offers Protestants today a model of jurisprudence that we can appropriate and learn from that is in line with the classical jurisprudential tradition and the confessional Protestant tradition. For Protestants to engage in a cogent manner in the post-liberal discussion, we must look to our sources whence can be found not only a model to follow, but also the tools to revive the life and soul of our commonwealth. Thank you. If you enjoy this free audio from the Davenant Institute, please like, subscribe and share. We invite you also to join our email list if you want to hear about upcoming events, new content or course offerings at Davenant Hall. Links are in the description.